Welcome everybody to another ProVideoCoalition.com podcast. My name is Damien Allen. I'll be the host for the day. And we're going to be talking today specifically about the state of remote editing here in 2021. So we've actually done a couple of these, one right at the beginning of the pandemic last year. And my goodness, it's amazing that we're still having this conversation a year later, but we are. And what's really important right now is we've moved from a place of just scrambling to get a solution in place to somewhere where everyone is really now looking at the future remote editing and remote work in general. But the conversation today, we're really going to focus on remote editing, what that looks like. And I actually have a really great crew of guests today. So let me just go through and make introductions. First of all, from Melrose Mac, we have Zeke Margolis. Melrose Mac's one of those companies that kind of has outgrown its name, I, I guess you could say. You probably better summarize as like a post-production sales and service provider. Would that be accurate? I think so. I, I, I would be so bold as to say we're probably the most horizontally diversified technology vendor in the LA area and perhaps in the US. So we do continue to maintain our retail presence, which we've done for 18 years, but we also have over a dozen subject matter experts in our Melrose Tech engineering department. And we do full service integration, on-prem, hosted, hybrid cloud, D all of the above. So, that, so right. there's very little that might be a requirement that we're not able to assist a client with these days. Cool. So you, you guys really have been in the trenches with a lot of your clients working this stuff out over the last uh, year, obviously. We certainly have. Uh, out of curiosity, so if, if you don't know, Melrose is the street that the, well, originally the flagship, I guess it's still the flagship store, right? On Melrose. Yeah, Melrose in Hollywood. And you guys still sell Macs. We right? certainly do. We're actually the largest independently owned Apple reseller in North America. Oh, there you go. And actually, this is completely off topic, but what's happening with max sales in the, in the pro space? Are people buying those $35,000 Mac Pros or now that the new Apple chips are kind of on the horizon, is people holding their breath and their purchasing decisions? People are buying them. I don't know that they're buying the $35,000 ones, but they're definitely right. buying uh, lesser configurations, especially now that Apple makes a rack mount computer so that you can get that Mac Pro in a rack configuration. And uh, there I, are I, remote access solutions that are Mac specific. They are right. like the Mac Pro, not the least expensive option available, but if you want to have a remote Mac only experience, there are many people doing that with the new Mac Pro. So I think there is right. uh, life in that product line. Obviously, Apple has started to develop their own chips, although the first chips don't have quite the capabilities on the graphics side to support the type of applications such as visual effects and heavy uh, editing, it's certainly on the roadmap. And I think it's just a matter of time before we see those sorts of chips start to make it into the professional products like the Mac Pro. For sure. So, well, thanks, Zeke. I'm going to call you in, in a bit because obviously you have a really broad view of this whole topic of remote editing. We also have Nicholas Anderson from Creative Space. Now, is it Creative Space or is it Creative.Space? How do we say that, Nick? You can call it Creative Space, but Creative.Space is, is technically it because it's also the website. So right. when people see the logo, they know exactly where to go. Cool. So we've, we've actually covered these guys in a couple of articles on Pro Video Coalition. And what Nick's group really does is they have a managed storage solution. So they provide you with uh, 
network attached storage, but it's smart, it's built on ZFS, and there's a whole lot of remote diagnostics and whole management system that's extremely simplified. Yeah, I mean, we're also, you know, Digital Glue is a systems integrator. And so Create a Space is, you know, just one of our offerings. Right. And really, you know, we previously were selling other vendor storage and we ran into a lot of problems, both with the business model, but also in terms of support, you know, we would end up with customers basically not calling until they ran into basically service interruptions. And so we figured out a proactive model where we could put software in the system where basically it would notify our team whenever there was an issue. And so using that, we could be proactive and address those problems before they actually end up interrupting anything. There's a lot of kind of small things we discovered that really kind of built up over time to lead to those problems. It wasn't really just failing all at once. So yeah. Cool. And it's kind of grown from there, obviously. And you guys have a vested interest in making sure remote collaboration works because people have, you know, they're leasing this equipment from you. They need to be able to access it. So you, I, I know there are some things you have kind of uh, in the works that you can't explicitly talk about yet, uh, but even just getting a sense of your approach and some of the things you've looked at in terms of getting your clients to be able to access the stuff that's on those storage servers at their houses. So thanks, Nick. And now we have Bill Thompson from Signiant. Bill, how you doing? Hey, thanks for inviting me. I'm doing great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Bill, uh, you're, you're a bit of an old timer, right? I know you were at Tektronix, SeaChange, EditShare, and you boast in your bio somewhere being pre-digital. Yeah, I like to say I go back not as far as black and white television, but yeah, I've been in this business a while. I, I love it. You know, it's a great set of customers and it's nice to have a job where, you know, your friends and family. Well, it's nice go, to have a job. Yeah, right? it's great to have a job, but it's, it's even greater when your friends and family know firsthand who your customers are, whether it's three letter networks or big studios or whatever. So yeah, thanks. Thanks again for including me. So. Some of you may have no, may know the name Signiant, others may not. They're probably more known at the mid and upper sort of bigger commercial level, right? Yep, Corporate that's level. That's correct. Because they're really dealing with backbone infrastructure and getting data between large clients, but you also scale down to more modest sized studios as well, right? We it's probably safe to say that we have more users in the small to medium business uh, hmm. class of company, you know, four or five man shops, that wouldn't be an un uncommon for us to have customers that, you know, if you're a VFX house or an animation house and you're not very big and you're working with partners somewhere else geographically, you probably know us. Hopefully right. you know us better than our competitors. But, but yeah, we're, <laughs> we go pretty far down the food chain and, and we're deliberate about it in terms of how we structure our offerings to make sure that there are offerings available for a smaller shop. I mean, it's not all about Disney, although we're happy to have them as, uh, you know, one of our bigger customers. Yeah. So if you're wondering what Signiant specifically has to do with remote editing, what they have is a, a method of transferring data via UDP instead of TCP, which typically causes problems, it has no guarantee of delivery, but they've built on top of that Berkeley socket layer, some additional magic juju beans to essentially ensure that data gets sent somewhere. And what that means is you get more data sent faster than you would under a TCP IP protocol. So just 
a kind of an ugly quick explainer there, but mm -hmm. I should say that that's just the bare bones of the industry, right? What you guys have, as, as have others, but you've built on top of that, a whole lot of cohesive services for synchronization, for sort of unsupervised data transfer and that kind of thing. Uh -huh. Right. Exactly. Uh, that was a great explanation. I mean, probably it's, it's, if I could take a second, just talk about, we just got a, a patent approved by the USPTO. And actually that extended what we do in terms of fast file transport to add AI ML based intelligence. So after a customer's route has been in use, we actually have now levers that we can switch and pull to choose the optimal operating condition. And some simple explanations are you might take a file and break it into parts and send those parts separately, but it's all about using intelligence to choose the best way to get content across any given network. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So obviously Bill is going to be very helpful when we, when we're talking about just moving data around, getting in the cloud. And finally we have Vince, is it Aletta? Yeah, great job. Oh, excellent. Look at that. So Vince is from Parsec. Now, a lot of you guys will be familiar with the name Teradici. Certainly in the visual effects world, they have sort of been a part of studios for a long time. Even when everything's on-premises, often Teradici has been used just to have the machine stored in one part of the building and the artists working at sort of thin client workstations throughout the building. And Teradici's kind of got a lot of buzz in this last year when we're working remotely, but they're not the only game in town. And in fact, Parsec is really interesting because you guys really came from the game industry where latency is way more important than we think in the video side. I mean, we're always complaining, well, it's got to be incredibly low latency for me to feel like I'm editing, but it's kind of virtual life and death, at least in esports, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Coming from the gaming industry, performance and having the lowest latency possible were paramount for us to be successful. Yeah, so this is, I would encourage you guys, I mean, this is not an advertisement for any of these guys, although obviously I wanted to give each of the guests a chance to kind of explain what they do and tout their wares. But I would encourage you guys to check Parsec out, partly because it's actually really easy to access. I, I don't know if this has changed, but it's not a simple thing just to do a trial of Teradici. Whereas Parsec offer a free license for personal use right out of the gate. And what kind of blew me away as a VFX artist is I have my 32 core Threadripper workstation with an RTX 3090. And I can actually go to a coffee shop with my 2012 MacBook Pro. And it's like working on that 32 core machine. I mean, it, it really is quite remarkable. Now you've, you've already kind of really made headway into the market as it stands, right? But it's something you're actively developing, correct Vince? That's correct. Yeah, we're, we're extremely popular in the gaming market, but now funnily enough, by number of customers, we've since surpassed the gaming industry with the media and entertainment industry. So we're seeing pretty strong adoption and, and very strong interest in media and entertainment. And we are actively kind of working on our roadmap to continue to support and be successful in the media and entertainment space. Great. And then just out of curiosity, you want to let us know what, what are some of your big clients on the gaming side? Yeah, absolutely. So some of our publicly referenceable clients on the gaming side are Activision Blizzard. Uh, we support all of their broadcast efforts as well as some other internal use cases. So their esports stuff 
Uh, right Esports stuff, uh, as well as a few other internal things. And it, this is a very, very interesting workflow. Blizzard uses Parsec to connect to machines in South Korea. Users are in Los Angeles. So and what's the what's the round trip latency on something like that? It's it's well over 150 milliseconds. Right. Uh, and and we like to say that you know there are no hard and fast rules when it comes to latency. It really depends on your workflow where some workflows work very well with 100 plus milliseconds of latency, whereas other workflows and other users, uh, you're, you're probably not going to want to go over 40 or 50 milliseconds. Well, so part it, of that depends on your blood pressure, I think, too, it, right? Indeed, yes. <laughs> All right. I'm excited just to have you along because, like I said, every one of you is knowledgeable in the field. And this is obviously a big deal. We really are at a point here in 2021 where it was okay to just get something working in 2020 because we kind of thought we'd be back in our offices in a few months and clearly we were not. And so now we're at this point where as an industry, everyone has to say, Hey, this isn't really going away. So how do we make this semi-permanent and assuming even if COVID went away, a lot of editors have decided, you know, I kind of like working from home. And so I don't think we'll ever see a complete reversal back to everyone on-prem. So we have to look at the reality that even when this blows over, people are still going to want to do this and do it well. So let's talk about the three primary ways this has been done. The first one is editing at online resolution from home. So basically the media and the horsepower lives at your home studio where you're doing your editing work. Number two would be editing remotely with media at the studio, which is called on-prem. I'm, I'm never a big fan of acronyms and pseudonyms and stupid names because I just feel like it's kind of an arrogant way of blocking newcomers out of industries. But on-prem is one of those terms that simply means the media stays at your studio offices and doesn't leave. So we look at that. If you're ed editing remotely, but the media is at the studio, and then option number three would be editing remotely from the cloud. And in that case, both the media and the horsepower for it are living in the cloud somewhere, not at your studio, but actually at a third-party service like Amazon or Microsoft Azure. And you are pumping your data into that cloud and then consuming it, most likely from a VM, a virtual machine that is actually at some data center. And you're kind of having a thin client experience at, at your local machine. So those are the three main workflows that are being exercised. And uh, let's dive right in. Let's start with editing online resolution from your home office. So you're editing from there and everything is local. So let me, let me start with you, Zeke. What percentage of your clients would you say have gone in that specific direction? The direction of- Of actually- Having high res editing remotely? Yes. Well, I think when you talk about remote editing, there we like to consider two different workflows. So there's there's sort of the outside in workflow and the inside out workflow. One of those being your remote user is connecting to uh, storage that's somewhere else and not copying any material. Right. Simply working off of it. The other is where all of the material is also located somewhere else, but then a copy of it is being synchronized to a local drive. And then they're basically working off of it locally and synchronizing their finished content back. 
Right. So my answer is kind of two part in that in terms of that first, the outside in, almost no one is doing that. There okay. are a few very specialized cases where you have uh, remote color grading or remote finishing, but the overhead required in terms of the, the bandwidth and the hardware is prohibitive in most cases. Yeah. We do have a number of clients that are working you know, in 4K in the inside out model in that the, you know, the media can take longer to get there, but because you're not trying to do a real-time process, that's okay. Synchronizations can happen overnight, and when an editor gets up, all of the new dailies are there for him. He has a standalone SSD RAID connected to his local system, and it's no different from editing in any post facility that they would have pre-COVID. Right. So if you were going to separate like clients that are doing some kind of workflow like that compared to those that are streaming their desktops, is there a, an even split or? It is, you know, it's, it's fairly close to even. There are a number of variables that kind of come into play that, you know, that influence the choice. You know, at Melrose Mac, our philosophy is requirements first, technology second because we represent a lot of different types of technology. And the most important thing is to understand the requirements of the project, how many people are involved, how much media is involved, what are the expectations for turnaround, what sort of deadlines are people working with. And a lot of that will influence one direction or the other, as well as certainly last year, a lot of it had to do with what level of technology already existed in the environment so if people already right. had a lot of infrastructure built up to kind of do a distributed workflow, it was easy to send people home and just have them connect in using Teradici or Parsec or other tools like that. By the way, we are big fans of Parsec at Melrose uh, and have worked with that product on projects. But a lot of people weren't. You know, A lot of people weren't ready. A lot of people didn't have the right types of network security appliances or adequate bandwidth coming out of their facilities to practically enable a workflow where 30 editors could be logging in from home tomorrow or right. even next week. So in those type of environments, going and buying a bunch of hard drives, copying a bunch of media, and then sending everybody home with it was, was really the only sort of available port in the storm. Right. And, and that's, that is the Hollywood thing, right? I mean, we've all, if you've been in the industry, we've all done it. Whatever it takes to get the job done. If, if it means, you know, working off an Amiga from 1995, because that's the only place where the files are stored, it's what you have to do, you know, until the job gets done. And that, that is kind of the point here, right? We've had enough time to do the fire drills and now it's time to get down to business. I'm curious and I'll, I'll call Nick into this moment because I know he in particular, I don't know how much he can talk about, but, but they've worked their own very specific strategies out for dealing with this. But in terms of the glue for this, things like synchronization of files to keep things from splintering. If I'm working on a version of the project here and I've got a, an assistant editor on a, some other location, in terms of versioning and keeping everything in sync, are there off-the-shelf solutions for that now, or is that still something where someone's in there with some Python and some other digital glue and customizing a solution for each situation? Yeah, so we have our team right now, basically. So part of our solution is really the managed service, which includes the kind of that custom consulting, which isn't just technology, but also best practices. So at this stage right now, we're basically working with customers to kind of design individual workflows for them, just kind of based on their preferences 
But what we're really doing is setting up, you know, syncing workflows that are using our folder structure templates. So essentially what we're able to do is have the same folder structure on each drive, whether it's on our storage or local for the editor. And so we're just synchronizing based on those shared roots. So they have the same directory structure for, you know, for everything. And we also have uh, a sneaker network flow we support as well, so that basically on the same kind of root structure, they can compare a snapshot of the destination and send that to the source, and then they can copy only the files needed to a shuttle drive and send those as well. And we really call this workflow fog rather than cloud, because it kind of accounts for those offline and, and on-prem scenarios as well. So yeah. So the way this would work potentially is let's say new show starts, some PA that shouldn't be getting underpaid, but is drives on their own gas out to the suburbs with a drive and the editor picks it up, loads it up. And then from there on nightly syncs potentially to keep everything on track. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the real, you know, key things about the fog workflow is that Part of the best practices is the creation of optimized proxies. And we actually kind of integrate our FTP solution with uh, VPN, which actually has UDP. So it's able to basically do those accelerated file transfers, but also provide the ability to mount SMB spaces remotely as well. So the proxies you really can edit from, you know, right away there, you don't have to wait for anything to download. There's no kind of waiting on a middleman for things to transfer. So you're kind of working instantly with proxies and then Overnight, when you're not working, you can transfer all the rest of the stuff. So in the next day, when they come in, they're editing with the actual media. Okay. So it's your file system that's keeping new versions in sync and that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, essentially, the the file system has snapshots in it. So basically, it can sync all the different copies to it and not actually lose, you know, with the version 8, it doesn't lose the data, but it can replace so basically it- off of all the, the kind of remote nodes, basically. So it kind of becomes the one central hub that has the source of truth for all the different and So w- what happens if there's a, like if I've edited the same project file as someone else? Yeah, so that's where best practices basically okay. come into play. And we've got a guide that we've written that's on our website that basically talks about this. But I mean, essentially it's as simple as the media is in kind of one root folder and then all the projects are kind of individually put in folders based on the user. That's not, it doesn't really need to be done for Resolve because they're not, they're using databases instead of folder structures, but that's essentially it. You know, other than if they're using like Avid and bin locking, then they would be in a shared structure, but that also kind of manages itself because they can access that through the remote connection. Got it. So Zeke, I I know you've obviously got a lot of Avid clients and there's a huge collaboration point with bins and assistant editors doing a lot of prep work and those kinds of things. Are there specific ways that's been tackled on uh, your setups? So... They're, they're different. There's more than one workflow. Right. I think probably the most common thing for environments that already had some type of shared storage and, and most often in an Avid workflow, that's an Avid ISIS or an Avid Nexus as your tier one storage. You still have someone has to physically load the media on, even if you're doing a workflow where everyone is connecting in remotely via Teradici or Parsec. The media still needs to get onto that ISIS or Nexus. So what most people have done is, you know, that that underpaid AE is, you know, going into an office that they're not supposed to be in and loading that media on and doing whatever transcode or grouping or, or making of bins, and then everyone is accessing it remotely. It's it's by far the you know, most efficient way to do it. And the reality is, if there's one person in a building, they're probably 
safely socially distant from a- any potential harm. Right. Some people are able to do that. Certainly, if you have an accelerated file transfer technology at your disposal, like Signiant, and there are probably a half a dozen other products that clients are using in some capacities that are in that same space, and your you know the volume of media that you're creating is not extreme, then you can handle it doing it remotely. And we do have some probably more scripted television and feature type projects where the the shoot ratios are lower. We have a lot of unscripted clients where, you know, shoot ratios are in are in the triple digit or, you know, quad digit range. And there's just no effective way to do that without physically taking a drive and plugging it into the server to get the media in. Got it. And then is there any easy way to deal with people stepping on each other's toes in terms of project files and those kinds of things? Or is it really a matter of kind of laying down the law in terms of who's touching what? Well, I think like Nick yeah. uh, was saying, definitely best practices and, you know, we're big believers in, you know, defining a workflow and then asking people to adhere to it. There are some technologies, there are products like storage DNA fabric that work with, you know, understand Avid metadata and are able to kind of synchronize project files, but it's still, everyone is getting their own project file and it's, it's basically just managing the traffic of who's on first. Right. So right. that, like you said, people don't step on each other, but it is, it does require a little bit of rethinking because it's a, it's a paradigm shift from the way that people are used to doing a traditional, you know, shared project workflow with Avid Media Composer. Right. I mean, I, I know all these things, no matter how well you do them, you always end up with like three versions of the two terabyte media and you're never quite sure if there's a slight difference with one of them or, you know, one day, if anyone can solve the archive problem in this industry, they would be incredibly wealthy. But yeah, this is Bill. Maybe it's worth talking about. We've had some customers who, yeah, everything we've talked about is, you know, I, I see every day in our customers. But consider we have customers now, they might be working from their home office or they might be actually in working the reverse. They're in, they're in their studio, maybe all by themselves, safely distanced, but they actually back up the day's work from all the artists who happen to be working there that day at the, the owner of the studio, a uh, server at the owner of the studio's home. And you know that takes advantage of our technology, but more importantly, it's that even on the basis of a day-to-day, people are constantly moving content. You know, whether they're moving it in from production, they get the day shoots, you're moving them in as, as was described, but also at the end of the day, preserving your work. And another interesting sort of wrinkle on that is, and I'm sure the Parsec guys have heard this more than anybody else, is a sort of a follow the sun strategy where you do a little work in Montreal and then Montreal's business work, uh, business day ends and you pass the files on to Singapore or New Zealand. And now they're going to work with the up-to-date stuff and they're going to pass it around to Paris, you know, at the end of every eight hour shift. So this is a little more prevalent in game development, but there's that follow the sun strategy. We have loads of customers using that as well. Again, it's all about moving the right version of the content over so that the next group can work on it. Yeah, that's, uh, it's definitely interesting. I mean, I, I think there's a bigger, we could have a whole other podcast just on the 
the whole strategy of how how many different workflows exist. Well, and and even (laughs) just, you know, just keeping track of media and, and disaster recovery and the whole thing. That's another conversation. I want to switch tack now and let's look at the process of editing remotely with the media at the studio. So the media stays on premises and you're effectively working with what's called a thin client at your studio, at your home studio, I should say. So this is where I want to bring Vince into the picture. So the idea here, let me just kind of dumb it down, is you have a big old expensive workstation somewhere, and then you have a really dumb, cheap, nasty computer that you bought for next to nothing, and it doesn't really have much power, much storage space. In fact, there's something called a zero client, which basically just means that it has the bare minimum it needs just to be able to receive a signal and display it. So we have zero clients, which would be these boxes specifically designed for this kind of workflow, or you just have your home computer is what is receiving the signal. So this is a really interesting thing because a lot has changed over the last few years to make this possible, right? And and a big part of that I would guess would be GPU power. Would that be fair, Vince? Absolutely. It's it's especially the GPU power in the host computer that is encoding the signal that's being sent to the client device. But most remote technologies, in, including Parsec and especially Parsec, also take advantage of GPU power on the client device. Right. You code that video very, very quickly. And so how important is that? Let's start with that. So if I get a really crappy computer, am I at what point in terms of graphics card performance, am I compromising the experience on the client side? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. So it really depends which codec you are streaming it. We support both the H.264 and the H.265 codec. We always recommend that you stream with H.265 because it's going to give you better quality at the same bit rate or the same quality at a lower bit rate. But many machines, particularly older machines, don't necessarily support performant H.265 decoding. So we have the capability to fall back to H.264, which gives really, really good compatibility on a wide range of devices. And is that primarily a GPU thing there in terms of the H.265? It is, yeah. And and when I'm talking about GPUs in this case, or when we're talking about GPUs in this case, uh, we're not necessarily talking about a dedicated GPU. AMD and Intel processors also have onboard GPUs for video decoding and video encoding. In the Intel space, this is called Intel UHD graphics or Intel HD graphics. And it's a little chip that's present on the CPU, but is actually a GPU. And that has special optimizations, hardware level optimizations that allow you to decode H.264 or H.265 video extremely quickly. And so what what kind of age group in terms of processor would support H.265? Like... 2017, 2019, when did, when would you have to abort that CPU? Yeah, we like to frame it in terms of years. So I'm glad you went there. For H.264, we like to say anything from, from 2012 to 2016 or 2017. And then for H.265, that stuff kind of started to get introduced around 2017, but you'll see better performance with newer hardware. Uh, so call it 2018, 2019, you'll get excellent performance with H.265. Having said that, if you had a, had a well-equipped workstation from 2012 and you put a modern graphics card in it, you would still be back in the game, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we're talking about the, the graphics card specifically because that's what's doing the decoding in this case. 
Cool. Okay. So on the, on the server side, what percentage of the GPU card is being used for the encode compared with what I may actually be using for media composer or Maya or whatever is actually using GPU compute power or not compute power, but GPU processing. Yeah. I, I love that question. Uh, cause that's actually part of Parsec's secret sauce is that all of Parsec's load is insulated from anything else that's running on the machine. So if we're talking about NVIDIA GPUs, which are very common in host machines, either the consumer GPUs or the um, enterprise Quadro GPUs, all of those GPUs have a special chip that is called NVENC or the NVIDIA encoder. And that chip is designed to only do one thing, which is to encode video. Uh, so those NVIDIA GPUs also have what are called CUDA cores. They're kind of the equivalent to the CPU cores in a CPU. And, and Parsec actually doesn't use any of those CUDA cores, and it also doesn't use any CPU cores, which means that those compute cores are left fully available for the applications that are running on the machine. So the applications that are running on the host computer don't impact Parsec's performance, and Parsec's performance doesn't impact anything else that's running on the machine. Interesting. So I guess with the exception of something like maybe Adobe Meteor Encoder that might access that? I didn't. So, so that's right. Adobe Media Encoder does have the capability to encode a video or export a video using NVENC. However, NVENC has up to three sessions available per chip. So unless you are streaming three monitors with Parsec, which you actually can't do today, but you will be able to do shortly, we st always leave an NVENC session available for Adobe Media Encoder or any other application to use. So right. we're using up to two streams and we'll leave one stream available for other applications. And can one of those streams be 4K? Uh, or, yeah, one or okay. all of them can be 4K. Right, which is an interesting point. I, I you know, a, a lot of editors will tell you that they, they have to have two or three monitors, but actually a 4K monitor can, for at least high definition video, still give you a full HD signal and plenty of screen real estate for your interface. So it's definitely a way to work and obviously with the support for two monitors, that still allows you to have a dedicated broadcast monitor there, right? That's right. And okay. one of the things that we're also seeing become more and more popular for monitors at home are ultra wide monitors, which you know may have a 4K or even larger than 4K resolution. And they give you even more capability to fit you know, multiple HD playbacks or even larger resolution playbacks on a single monitor without having to scale down. And is, in terms of the uh, LUTs for the monitors, let's say I have a Rec. 709 monitor, is the LUT transparent? Is it whatever I set in the OS? Or does it have anything to do with it, with Parsec service? How does uh, that so, work? So Parsec streams in Rec. 709, uh, okay. standard dynamic range with up to 444 color. So the, the operating system color profiles do take effect on top of whatever Parsec is decoding because Parsec is running within the operating system. So, so talk to me about that. So let's say I've got a standard sRGB desktop. Is it going to look like the standard sRGB color space on my remote? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but it's, it's kind of transcoding into Rec. 709 and then back out to sRGB on the other end. Is that how it works? So we will encode Rec. 709 on one side, we yep. will decode Rec. 709 on the other side. And then if the OS or the GPU in the host, or uh, excuse me, the GPU in the client are running an sRGB rather than Rec. 709, although they are 
very similar, as I'm sure you guys know. The OS will handle the conversion from Grix 09 to sRGB. Okay. Got it. Well, do you mind real quick, because I know for some people, this idea, I, I mean, a lot of people have done VNC and Microsoft remote desktop and that kind of thing, but walk us through what happens from the time I hit the space bar to the time I see a preview play in my monitor. How does that look? Yeah, no, that, that's an excellent question. So Parsec operates by encoding the GPU's frame buffer. What that means is that as soon as a frame is ready to be presented to the monitor, Parsec also encodes it and sends it out over the wire uh, to be decoded by the client device. So as soon as you hit play on your timeline, your GPU is and, and or your CPU, depending on what's doing the decoding, are going to decode that compressed video, You know whether that's ProRes or DNX or whatever we're talking about here. Uh, your GPU or your CPU will decode that compressed video. It will then present a decoded frame to the frame buffer, and Parsec will then encode that frame and send it over the wire. Again, that's part of our special sauce. It's our, we call that a zero copy encode pipeline because we are encoding directly out of the GPU's buffer rather than copying the buffer elsewhere and then encoding. Got it. And then, so ignoring the latency that's added by the distance from client to the actual workstation, what kind of latency is added by that whole process? So with modern NVIDIA GPUs, when I say modern, I'm talking about anything in the RTX series, whether that's RTX 2000, RTX 3000, or RTX A6000 in the Quadro space, we see about four milliseconds to okay. encode. And then on the decode side, that can it depends on the spec of the client device, but we see about the same decode latency. So we, we like to say that par, all of Parsec's processes, excluding the network latency, are, are well below one frame of delay. It's at uh, 60 FPS, which is 16.7 milliseconds. Got it. Okay, cool. So we, we talked about the color space basically is, is Rec. 709 and we are dealing with 8-bit per channel. So there's no real compromise apart from the fact that we obviously can't get into 10-bit or any kind of HDR color space at this point. But the color space is, from what I've seen from tests is, is as accurate as it needs to be, certainly for editing and even for standard def color correction. Absolutely. And, and good news for you there is that we have recently added 10-bit to our, our mid to short-term roadmap. We use NVENC, right? And NVENC already supports 10-bit encoding on, on the latest GPUs. So it's just a matter of us uh, doing a little bit of legwork to integrate that into the Parsec SDK. Very cool. Let me pull Zeke in on this. So Zeke, Tell me about your experiences and client experiences with the whole, this whole workflow of, of having the workstation stay there and then streaming the desktop. Is that? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, like most things related to technology, you know, the, the, the better the technology you use, the better experience you'll have. One of the things we found kind of early on last year as people were scrambling to set up remotely is a lot of computers went back to people's houses to be those work from home computers that were, you know, a few years older than they should have been to uh, accomplish that task. Right. So having a computer from the last 24 months versus having one from the last five years definitely makes a difference kind of all the way around. Another thing that's a big factor is your ISP. 
specifically, you know, the greater Los Angeles area, Spectrum residential internet is sort of infamous for not working reliably. And we've actually gone and done troubleshooting with some clients to find that a signal that's originating in Baldwin Hills is being sent to Atlanta and then <laughs> through Chicago and then coming back to Burbank. And as a result, you've got, you know, 50 to 60 milliseconds of latency. So a lot of the times when we have uh, support issues, that's one of the first questions our engineers ask is, is your ISP spectrum? <laughs> so have you had any success in dealing with that or is it just get a different ISP? Sure. Well, unfortunately, you know, the way that residential internet is sold is not designed for these type of applications. Right. So most internet service providers, if you want to have a static IP address, you need to have a business class connection and the cost is different for that. So yes, I mean, there are ways to address it, but they generally require expense. And, and some of our clients have looked at that as a cost of doing business and you know have not expected editors to bear that cost and have offered to do things like that so that people can have a better working experience. But assuming you have a proper computer and you have adequate bandwidth, and generally our rule of thumb is you know, 50 megabit if you're working in offline, 100 megabit if you want to work in, you know, a higher resolution codec as a minimum. And generally that's a synchronous connection. And that means the same amount of upload and download. Again, a lot of residential internet may offer you 100 megabit, but that's download speed. Right. Because the ISPs assume that what most people want to do at home is watch Netflix. Right. They, they don't assume that they also want to send back um, data to the uh, origination location. And a lot of times it's 100 megs down and 10 megs up and to actually get it to be 100, 100 is a significantly uh, higher cost. But that being said, you know, taking that out of the equation, generally people have had a good experience. We have had a number of clients. I think our largest supported client environment with that kind of outside in workflow is 150 active users and it works, you know, nothing's perfect. There's always a couple of users every day that might have issues, but a lot of it is managing people's expectations. There are some things that are harder to do in a remote environment. And if there's ever anything like the power gets tripped or, you know, a computer crashes, that's pretty hard to uh, recover from without getting someone in front of it. Right. And now with, with 150, for example, with 150, and this is the idea of, of a subscription where you have a certain amount of resource. Now, I imagine with a lot of these, it's just machine to machine anyway, but what? Well, no, you, you, you bring up a great point. And so with solutions like Parsec or Teradici or any remote solution, there's different tiers of scale. Right. So once you get above um, 10 users, you, you may run into some issues just in terms of management of the resources. So there's this concept of having uh, a resource broker in the mix so that as, as an example, in a, in a typical production environment, you may have a pod of producer stations or story stations where it's a set number of computing resources that are used by a larger number of users, not all at the same time. And you can create that same type of environment with a, with, with a virtual or a remote connection, but you need to insert a layer to actually help manage that. Right. So you create users and groups, you can create permissions-based um, authentication. And so if a producer signs in, that broker goes to look at the available resources and sees if there's anything appropriate. And if there is, it offers it to them. 
And if there's not, it doesn't. So there's a, there's a third party tool that's very popular. We work with it at Melrose. It's, it's generally part of the recipe of any pure cloud-based solution. And that's a company based in Massachusetts called LeoStream, L-E-O Stream. And that takes a lot of the heavy lifting out of kind of managing these larger environments where, you know, our client that has 150 users, that's, you know, 50 producer executive level people, 75, you know, core editors and 25 sort of assist editor admin type roles. But each of those is a different set of technology, right? So you're able to kind of better manage it having tools like Leo stream is part of your workflow, but again, there's a, there's a price of entry for that and being tools that are sort of built for web environments, there's a minimum level of licensing that you have to buy in it. So it doesn't make sense for a group of five, a group of five is better to do manually. Well, I I will say once you start looking at VM solutions, it's amazing how much the licensing stacks up. Everyone wants their piece, right? NVIDIA wants a piece for licensing virtual GPUs. VMware might want a piece for licensing uh, their software. Then you have to license for Microsoft. It it really... None of those licenses are perpetual. Right. And anything (laughs) to these type of... It's not really a license. It's a subscription. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it is amazing. You think, wow, this is going to be a bargain. And then you, when you start adding all the numbers for all the different pieces that want their piece of the pie, it, it gets pretty crazy. Yeah, we tend to be fans of, you know, of a hybrid workflow or, you know, I very much liked the, the term that Nick brought up with a fog as opposed to a cloud. So, so we've coined it as a private media cloud, right? Where not all of the resources are in the cloud because it's still pretty cost prohibitive to do that, right. but that you have some resources somewhere, you know, as I think Bill was saying, we, we as well have set up a lot of servers at executives homes, right? And that's where, you know, that's where the assets are living, or maybe it's in a data center and a hosted type of environment. A lot of the post and rental facilities have kind of pivoted over the last year and become mini data centers since they have a lot of space and, they generally have bandwidth, and if you move your you know, equipment into there, you don't need to have your own data center to do it, but you're leveraging technologies like Signiant, like Parsec, sort of cloud-based topology to actually allow your users to interface with those resources. Cool. I, I know Nick has a comment I want to hit real quick. Nick? Yeah. You know, we've been talking about having the storage kind of on-premise with executives. But one of the things we found that's really valuable is kind of following the natural production schedule and actually hosting the storage with the colorist or DP, because they're the ones who are going to be having to work on and process the media. And if you host it with them, then they're the ones needing the highest quality access and the highest mm. quality visibility to those assets. That's but actually once proxies exist, then everyone else can just access those remotely. So it really kind of solves that last mile issue by putting the resources where the last mile is and then having everyone else come to them. That's a good point. Okay. I want to quickly address the issue of editing remotely from the cloud. It, it is interesting because it sounds to me, it's a bit of a pipe dream right now in terms of having everything happen in the cloud, right? So the idea of buying a, or renting, I should say a VM from Amazon or from Microsoft Azure and having a fully qualified high-end workstation in the cloud and then 
putting all the media in the cloud and actually editing in a similar situation to what we're talking about with Parsec. In fact, you can use Teradici or Parsec as the medium, as the interface between that cloud computer and your local workstation. So it, it is the same thing. The difference is rather than you owning the machine that's in a data center or at your office and Parsec streaming, you're streaming from Microsoft Azure or Amazon. But there are a lot of problems with this, right? We have a lot of problems with getting the media there, with affording to have the media there, with moving the media around. And I've even found lately, it's almost impossible to get a decently equipped GPU machine at the remote station. In fact, I tried with Microsoft Azure, they simply, and I don't know if it's because of the current shortage on GPUs or the data mining <laughs> epidemic that we have, but they don't even have an NVIDIA GPU VM to provision on the West Coast data center, at least not for me. Maybe I'm not, I'm not up the pecking order enough, but this is not a simple turnkey solution that's out there, right? Bill, yeah. you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, one thing is that the, you know, the issue is even worse because the security requirements of the studios for big projects really don't allow you to have the stuff on-prem if it's at all connected to the internet. So right. that makes the problem even worse. They have to use the solutions regardless of how well those solutions actually function. Yeah, Bill, do you want to, I mean, I know you know, you obviously have a lot of experience even getting that data around. You want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, there's a couple of very interesting dimensions and uh, you touched on them. We have customers who run part of their workflow in AWS and part of their workflow in Google Cloud. And that's because of the fact, uh, the factor that you mentioned that the kinds of CPUs available in the Google Cloud are different and a better fit for that part of their workflow. So it's a good thing that, wow, we've found a place we can do that. Now you talk about, okay, so how do you get the assets up and then back and what is the cost of them? There's a, a couple of practical considerations there. You know, yeah, so talk, talk us through that because I know a lot of people have probably toyed with the idea right. and have been a little terrified to get a $3,000 storage bill at the end of a month or something. So yeah, what, sure. is the, what does it look like to get the data up there and keep it up there? Well, so getting it up there is virtually free because you know they want to they give away that stuff and, and have your content up in, in their cloud. And then they further wall you off by there's billing for exiting or egressing. And they only let you egress conveniently in, in one way. So you've all heard of AWS Direct Connect. So you can get a Direct Connect line into your facility or very close to it that gives you excellent service to AWS. But AWS will never give you a Direct Connect to Azure for obvious reasons. And Azure won't do it either. So, you know, there's a real need for tools that give you access to the multi-cloud so that you do have the freedom and you're not locked into a vendor. I mean, if you build your whole workflow around AWS, who, who are great, right? Our whole, comp our whole software as a service platform runs in AWS. But, you know, will we regret it if AWS goes, hey, we're raising prices, you know? you want to have the freedom to move your content and your workflows everywhere else. So, you know, just at a very high level without getting too much inside baseball, those are some of the big factors that probably still scare people off. The good, you know, the good news, what I'm trying to say is 
It might sound scary, but there are real practical demonstrated and proven solutions now available to support workflow in the cloud, on the premise, some hybrid of each, you know, whether it's any mix of cloud object, local object, or even uh, on-premise, good old fashioned, you know, NAS and SAM. Well, I know one of the things that confuses anyone that's even tried to do this is the actual different tiers of storage, right? Because you can get affordable storage, which is essentially on mechanical spinning disks. And then when you get to the kind of responsive storage media that you need for editing, we're talking about NVMe drives or at least SSDs, all of a sudden the, the cost of having your media stored on there skyrockets. And right. so for editing, you kind of have to have this balance where the stuff that you need in front of you for the edit session needs to be on that expensive storage, but you want to keep as much of the other stuff on the cheaper storage tier as you can. How Are, are there any like streamlined ways of managing that? Or is that something you kind of just, at, at least here in 2021, you have to juggle yourself? You know, it's, it's not that different than the pre-cloud era. In the pre-cloud era, you know, editors kept their hot projects on fast storage, right? And then they would buy some either LTO tape or some other cheaper spinning disk storage for parking projects. You know, if you're still waiting for a project to get greenlit or approved or relit, you know, which is so appropriate in the pandemic stage, you know, now you do have more choice, especially in the cloud. AWS, for example, has hot storage, regular S3. They have the opposite end of the spectrum is their glacier storage, right? Which is, you know, it's much cheaper but it might take you 10 times as long to get access to that content because it's parked very deep in the cloud and they don't have, they don't offer you fast ways to bring it back out and, you know, reuse it again. But yeah, you do have those choices. At the end of the day, you still need some sort of management system where it, whether it's manual or whether it's a policy-based storage man- management system but, you know, th- there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that stuff think like a human. It doesn't, right. do, which, it doesn't do that yet. Which is obviously why, you know, we have companies like Bebop, where uh, Michael Kamas, one of the Pro Video Coalition contributors, uh, works. And those guys, there's a good reason why they're, they have, they're in business, because this stuff is not simple. Correct. Right? You, you can't just show up and click on a couple of buttons on Amazon and expect to be editing in an hour. And Avid has recently, since our last episode of this, launched their own service, which is called Edit On Demand. Oh, I wasn't even familiar with that. Do you want to fill us in a little bit more about that? Sure. So it's a collaboration with Microsoft, who is a strategic partner and investor in Avid. And it's basically a a fully contained environment. So it includes your VM, you know, and they have a couple different tiers of whether you're trying to do offline resolution or online resolution. It includes workspace the way that you would have on a Nexus, and it's actually the only way to replicate the Nexus file system in the cloud, short of actually having a Nexus somewhere in a data center that you're remotely accessing. It includes your Media Composer subscription with all of your plugins. It includes uh, 40 hours a week of actual uh, use time in the cloud. It also includes File Catalyst for transfer up and down and there is no egress fees. 
it's sold kind of in an a la carte model in terms of each user, each terabyte of storage, and each workspace per month. But it's a complete turnkey. You basically you know, buy it. The only thing that you need to provide is an endpoint. So a zero client, some way to actually connect in it to see the machines. But all of the rest of it, they also include, you know, a VM for Active Directory. So if you have a larger group, you know, you can just replicate Active Directory settings to it. So it is a, you know, is sort of a turnkey offering and they've actually been prototyping it for a couple of years and they have a number of good sort of user testimonials. The product does work. You know, they, they offer a link to test your latency with Azure to make sure, you know, they recommend 50 milliseconds or less of latency and 50 megabytes a second or more bandwidth. But based on that, you know, it's a pretty good user experience. It's not inexpensive. Right. So really for us, and you know, we are a reseller of it at Melrose Mac and you know, we can equip someone with that solution, but on-prem technology is much more cost-effective. So really, I think like Bebop, it's, it's generally targeted at people that don't have infrastructure and don't want infrastructure. Right. So if you have a project that's a three-month project or a six-month project, or even in some cases like Bebop has recently done the Super Bowl, right? If you have an event where maybe there's a week or two of prep and a, you know, the event, it's much more cost-effective just to be able to spin it up, get everybody connected, do it, spin it down, and walk away. Yeah. I think that's kind of the story of the cloud, right? Because if if you're looking at general compute power, if you're a corporation and you want to compute in the cloud, that makes a whole lot of sense. But for our industry where we really demand high performance, high end equipment, I mean, it's not unreasonable to spend seven, 10, even 30 or $40,000 on a single workstation for certain tasks. The cloud just doesn't scale economically for us. Would that be fair to say? Definitely not. And especially, you know, as, uh, as Bill was talking about, there's different tiers of storage in the cloud. You know, generally, you know, cloud providers would prefer to high performance storage as uh, block storage and, and lower performance storage as object storage. So to, to provision block storage is expensive and it's a cost that never goes away. So if you were to look at the cost of buying 100 terabytes of, you know, create.space storage and amortizing that cost over a year of use and compare that with what equivalent performance storage cost in the cloud, you know, there's orders of magnitudes difference in price. Right. And most people still want to spend as little money um, as possible on technology, unfortunately, for all of us on the <laughs> podcast today. Actually, one, one thing that I do want to address, obviously, we're in an industry that's incredibly IP paranoid in terms of footage getting leaked and that kind of stuff. Is it true that there really isn't any more danger in having your stuff in the cloud now than, than there is to having it on-prem? Bill, do you want to talk to that at all? Sure. I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I, I heard a speaker about nine months ago at a similar conference, online conference, talking about this exact point. And he was not one of the cloud suppliers. He was like, you know, somebody who uses cloud in the M&E segment. And what he said is, well, I'm pretty sure my content is safe in the cloud because if the cloud vendors 
didn't have bulletproof security, they wouldn't have a business. Because you think of all the different, the strata of all the industries that they serve now are so demanding that that's kind, that kind of brought me about to say, hmm, that's a good point. If these guys had weak security, nobody, they wouldn't pass muster with all these big companies. So I think we're very lucky in the M&E space that we have access to very, very secure clouds. And we benefit from the bigger effect of larger industries and larger uh, businesses, you know, with their greater demands. <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think some of the over-paranoid certification efforts are a little, a little bit behind the times, let's just say that. But it's, we are kind of saddled with some of these certification requirements if you want to do business with some of the bigger studios. Sure. I always find it fascinating because I, I know I've worked on some of the bigger budget, like, you know, Spider-Mans and things. And we have these big audits, security audits at the start of the project. By the week before delivery, they're putting stuff on unsecure FTP servers, and, <laughs> you know, dumping, you know, so yeah, just download it from my Dropbox. And it's just kind of the security goes out the window. But it is, there's definitely a Jekyll and Hyde thing there where people are hyper sensitive about security at, at certainly at certain points. Well, well, Damien, one thing to interject here. I mean, people are worried about uh, the, the security of their data in the cloud. So what they're going to do is they're going to keep it all in a piece of storage on-prem and let everybody connect into it. Right. What about the security of that residential internet router that all of those people are using? Yeah. Great point. And so people don't really think about that. And so if you've got a VPN connection, you're coming through a firewall and you're accessing that storage. And if your computer at home is compromised and you don't know, they're coming right in with you. Yeah. And, so I would and, argue that's a much more, that's much more cause for concern. And, and a lot of the people that are doing those sort of RGS workflows are actually doing endpoint hardware security solutions so that people like the Marvel Studios and the Apple TV Pluses of the world can sleep well at night knowing that there's, you know, security end to end. Right. The cloud has that all already built in. Yeah, that's a really good point. I just want to take a couple more minutes to talk about collaboration, because to me, collaboration is the missing piece of remote editing. I mean, it's, it's a little naive to think of this editor diligently crunching away on an edit and coming out with a masterpiece in their bedroom at their house, because the reality is that directors really like to breathe over the shoulders of their editors. And depending on the relationship, it's, it's a much tighter collaboration between director or studio executives and editors than we like to think. And depending on the industry and the type of work, the editor either has complete creative control or actually a backseat in terms of the creative input. And so the problem with remote editing is typically it becomes this one-to-one -one experience. And we've had all kinds of wrestles with people trying to zoom their desktops and all kinds of things to allow people to collaborate on the editing experience. You know what? I want to switch to Vince on this real quick, if you don't mind, Vince, because I know you guys actually have a solution to that. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And, and thank you very much for bringing this up. Coming from the gaming space where Parsec's initial kind of purpose was to allow people to play games together. 
So transitioning from allowing people to play games together locally to transitioning to allowing creatives to collaborate together was kind of a natural progression for Parsec. And, and a lot of our features that we had built for gaming just, just naturally translated into allowing producers, directors, and clients to collaborate with their editors, their AEs, you know, their colorists, whatever the case may be. So I like to describe Parsec and potentially other remote access technologies may be able to do this as well as virtually walking over to someone's desk, where in the pre-COVID world, you actually walked over to someone's desk and looked over their shoulder and provided feedback in real time. Parsec allows you to do that similar experience, except to do it virtually by virtually walking over their desk via a Parsec connection. And that's the case whether or not we're talking about shared infrastructure in a studio environment or a workstation up in the cloud, or even in our scenario one, where we had the media that was being shipped to the person's home and, and being edited locally, Parsec can still be used for that local editor to share their local machine with a collaborator elsewhere over the internet. And so, is that, does that take the form of a, like a web broadcast and how many clients can consume the, the stream? Yeah, excellent question. It actually does not. So Parsec is always a peer-to-peer -peer technology. Okay. So we're not like going up to any cloud endpoint and then rebroadcasting from that cloud endpoint, kind of like a solution like Evercast would do. Parsec does this purely from a peer-to-peer -peer perspective. So we can't go as wide as a solution like Evercast, meaning we can't connect or we can't broadcast quote unquote to say 50 or 100 people. But we do have customers using Parsec to do that peer-to-peer -peer collaboration with 10 or 20 people simultaneously. So I'm and assuming the onus is on the bandwidth of the broadcaster, right? That's right. The, the onus is on the bandwidth of the host, which if we're talking about a host that's in the public cloud, then you essentially have unlimited bandwidth. If we're talking about a host that's in the studio, you still may have one gig or 10 gig of upload to the internet, which is going to be more than enough. It's on the home editing perspective where you're going to be more limited in terms of the number of simultaneous collaborators that you can support. And then how do you handle like back and forth audio and video streams from the, from the recipients? How does so, that work? So today we recommend using a external technology, something like a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams to do your audio video conferencing Got it. and to use Parsec for the screen share portion. However, we are working on building some of that natively into the app. Later. Some kind of VoIP layer or something like that. Right. Right. Cool. So I, I think Zeke would, you probably have seen it all in terms of this. What successful yep. methods have you got, have you seen for collaboration with your clients? So, so I think there's a couple different paths, right? Uh -huh. There are, there are services like Evercast or SohoNet offer Clearview Flex where a provider is going to manage this and sometimes you know, in the case of a, of a clear view, they give you a piece of equipment to put at the endpoint to do your encoding. And then everyone uses an app. And in some cases, it's strictly software based. Again, that's a requirements decision or discussion rather. In terms of actually investing in something to do it on your own, really there are two technologies we've done a lot of work with. One is NDI, which is uh, a format that was originally developed by NewTek, but is open source and basically allows you to provide real-time broadcast quality video over Ethernet. The other is called SRT, which is Secure Remote Transport and is, you know, is a similar but slightly different approach. And so there are companies that make encoders and decoders that support both of those protocols. 
And as long as you have a minimum level of bandwidth, you can create you know, near real-time playback so that having a, an online system in one place and having a color-graded 4K monitor in another place and being able to do a real-time color session is something that's a reality and people are doing today. Very cool. So definitely some solutions out there. I, I think it's going to be hard to replace being in a room together, but we obviously have ways and workarounds for that. I, I agree. And I think it's a whole nother um, episode for you at Pro Video Coalition. <laughs> I think you're probably right. What, what happens when the pandemic is over and everybody goes back to work? Like, what does work look like? Yeah. That's, we all have our opinions on that issue. It'll be interesting to see what business looks like and, and, and what level of paranoia everyone has over doing business in person, even once the, the pandemic's gone. So, well, well, for sure. And as a professional salesperson who's spent the last year working from home, I can certainly say that there is no substitute for person-to-person -person human interaction. Yeah. If you're a human. I, I will say, and this is completely off topic, but... One of the most fascinating things for me in the last few years is I, I really, I don't know if it's just because I, I'm a really bad uh, judge of audio cues and I need, I need body language, but I don't like phone calls or video conferences. I'd rather drive 30 miles to meet with someone than call them up. But I was working with a developer in France and we would meet in VR because it was a VR project. So we, we'd put on our Oculus and even though it was a cartoon avatar of the other person, because their hands were moving and there were gestures and the whole thing, I found that far more, you know, they talk about immersion, uh, far more immersive. I, in fact, the first time I did it, I was paranoid that I thought, oh, I didn't brush my teeth. My breath is going to stink. And then my brain had to remind me, no, no, this guy's not in the room with you. Mm. Uh, but it did make me think that there may be something there in the future once that technology gets more sophisticated and, and VR becomes less clunky and uh, cumbersome, that we may find some of those things to help to bridge that gap. But I, I think, uh, I certainly hope that we keep needing to meet in person for for many many years to come because it would be a depressing world if if we didn't look uh, thank thanks everyone for this has been an amazing conversation i everyone really knows this stuff here so i really appreciate it i want to just kind of pimp everyone's companies again so bills from signet that's s-i-g-n-i-a-n-t.com nick he's from digital glue but a creative.space is where you go check out the managed storage solutions is that correct nick that's correct. And we also have a free collaboration guide that goes over kind of best practices and the workflow for Resolve for remote workflows. Awesome. And then Vince is from Parsec. A couple of things there. First of all, you can go and sign up for a free trial. So you can actually just go there and get an unlimited personal use trial to check out their technology. But the important thing is the website is not Parsec.com, correct? That's correct. We're That'll take you somewhere else. That's right. Yeah. Parsec.com is, is, a, is an IT you know, tech provider. We're not Parsec.com. We are Parsec.app. That's .app. And to get right to our enterprise product, you go to Parsec.app slash teams. Awesome. And then Zeke is MelroseMac.com. Is that right? That's it. Zeke.Margolis at MelroseMac.com. Cool. And Zeke will be happy to sell you millions of dollars worth of broadcast equipment at Macintosh. And, and one just parting shot. We also have a full tech lab at Melrose Mac. So if anyone is interested in testing out any ah. of these workflows, we have all of this technology live and running and are happy to do 
proof of concept demos free of charge. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. And I'm looking forward to having you back sometime. If you will come back on, I'm sure we'll have an update on this later in the year. See you guys then. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks, Damien.